All right, there is a passage in Hebrews 5 that will help you. Help you focus your attention on who Christ is and what he has done for you. And it really assists you to engage with him as you pray with him and you talk to him. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9 this morning. Uh, This is a great passage. This talks about the process that Jesus went through when he accomplished atonement for our sin. Uh, There's a little bit of a lead up that's important to to understand. Uh, Starting at the beginning of the chapter, the author is writing about the high priests in Israel, the men. And he was talking about the humility of those men as they would come before the Lord every year to offer sacrifices on behalf of all of Israel. But they would offer sacrifices not only for Israel, but for themselves as well, knowing that they were in the same boat as everybody else. So there's a there's a setting, there's a context of humility here. Um, that setting continues with Jesus. Jesus was the, the official great high priest, and he was humble in the same way that God put that, and God gave that title, God gave that task to him. So the setting here is one of humility, and this really helps me when I... I set my mind on Christ. I'm attempting to focus my attention. So let's read verses 7 to 9 together and pull some things out of it that are helpful to us. And the context here is the time surrounding, right, leading up to and during and up to the end of Jesus' crucifixion. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus has three different things here that I see that that are very helpful to me when I'm considering my prayer time with him. The first is relating to his suffering and how dreadful his suffering was. He was praying with prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears in verse 7. This was the prayer that's recorded by Luke in chapter 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus understood the magnitude of what was in front of him. He understood the spiritual torment that was waiting for him. And uh, he was full of dread over that. Uh, to the point where physiologically there was blood oozing from the pores of his body. So as I engage with, with Christ, my Savior, in the morning, it's, it's helpful for me to remember how dreadful his suffering was that was caused by me and my sin. Second thing I see in verse 8 is how costly his suffering was. As a man, Jesus had only known unity with his Father. He came into this world, he was incarnate as a, a baby, And for every bit of his life, he had only known unity of purpose with the Father, whether it was his teaching or his miracles or any other thing, his healings. uh, Every bit of it was in perfect unison with his Father. Every bit of it was obedient. Uh, But now his obedience would mean something very different. It means that he would feel the full weight of the torment of his Father and the Father's vengeance against us and against everybody who would believe. And so Jesus' obedience was very, very, very costly to him. And the idea here is that he was learning obedience. That underscores that this process was a foreign process to him. That my sin actually caused Jesus to undergo a process that was very, very foreign to him. 
one in which obedience to the Father meant separation from the Father, as he received on himself all the Father's anger against me for my sin against him. So it really helps me to stop and remember just how costly um, suffering of Jesus was when he was suffering on my behalf. Uh, That helps me keep my mind from wandering and drifting as I pray. I'm talking to a Savior who suffered on my behalf in a way that was very costly. But then I comfort myself a lot of times with what's in verse 9, in that his suffering was very, very effective. Very, very effective for us. Having been made perfect, he became the source of salvation to all who believe. There was no sense in which Jesus was lacking in perfection. There was no sin in him at all. Uh, But what this is talking about is Jesus completing all of the requirements that were necessary for him to serve as our high priest. That when he was on the cross and he was actually suffering my place, he was finishing the task of being a high priest on my part. And this accomplished two things. Not only did did, um, he maintain his sinless nature during that time, but he also satisfied all the Father's wrath against me. And it helps me to remember that when... I look at both of those things. He was a high priest who was completely innocent, and yet he was a high priest who completely satisfied all the Father's wrath against me. And then it it describes at the end of that verse how he became the source of salvation to all of those who believe. And the source of salvation means he's the origin of that salvation. He's the cause of that salvation. He's the provision for that salvation. And that points to how completely effective his work on the cross was in my place. And so when I'm getting ready to pray and I'm spending time just organizing my thoughts, it just helps me to remember (coughs) these things. And these things characterize the one that I'm I'm praying to. That helps my mind (coughs) stay engaged. So my prayer is that that's helpful to you guys. If you uh, find yourself the same place I find myself often, trying to think ahead of my my time alone with the Lord and what's coming next, this is a passage that I found to be very helpful to keep me engaged. All right. So that's it for the disciplines this morning. Um, we're going to break off and go to our groups. And what time do we need to be back? Okay, 7.45, be here. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, if you got your Bibles ready to go and your handout ready and something to write with, we'll go ahead and dig in. But let's pray first um, so that we... We're just posturing ourselves rightly as we're considering God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do want to put ourselves uh, in a humble place before you under your word. And we're just so thankful, God, for your word. Um, It is food and nourishment for our souls. um, And we are nourished primarily um, with you from it. And it is the revelation of you. And so our desire is, is that we would learn how to interpret it well that we would pay attention to your meaning in uh, the words that are on a page, on all of the pages. Help these men to um, have a right perspective today that they don't need to have all of this figured out today, but Lord, may they be on a path for the rest of their lives where they would just grow and improve in how they um, interpret your word. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that though there's lots to talk about, it's actually really very simple. There's some simple things to kind of hang on to that are can be encouraging. And they already know how um, in so many ways to interpret words because uh, we count on being able to do that every day. Even right now, as they listen to me talk to you, 
they're considering words and how they're arranged and phrased, and they understand. They're interpreting even now. But Lord, something funny happens when we sometimes um, turn to your word and we think that there's something different to do or that it's much more difficult. So Lord, help us just to simplify things today and next time together. Also that we um, can see you coming forth from your word um, more clearly so that our worship and our love and affection for you would grow. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about some, uh, talk about how to study the Bible. Uh, we're going to talk about hermeneutics. Um, that's what hermeneutics is. It, it's, a, it's a set of rules for interpreting words. Um, and so we're going to get started on this today. We're, today we'll talk through presuppositions, the kind of pre-understandings that we have. What are the things that we all uh, work that we already believe about this book before we even turn to consider it today. Um, we're going to talk about some important definitions. We'll talk about two popular wrong ways to interpret Scripture. And then we'll talk about the right way to interpret Scripture. And then we'll just start today some principles for interpreting Scripture. We'll just start with the first one. And then I think there will be about 10 or 12 of them. I'm, I'm kind of rewriting the material. Um, and so we'll see what happens in the next two weeks, if it's 10 or 12 or something like that. But anyway, let's talk about some presuppositions. These presuppositions that we're giving you here, there's five of them. Um, the elders right now are working on a what we teach document. Uh, we have our doctrinal statement, which uh, you all looked at when you, uh, as you go through membership and you can see it online. We're working on a what we teach document that's beefier than that. And... Um, these five are taken from what the elders have recently put together in our bibliology statement. What do we believe about the Bible? And so uh, you get to be some of the first to cut your teeth on this. So very similar, to, if you've been in build in the past, this is very similar to the past notes. Um, not a whole lot of difference. But these are the presuppositions that we start with, pre-understandings that we start with. Number one, we believe that the Bible, the collection of 66 books given to us by the Holy Spirit, is God's written revelation to man. We teach that the scriptures constitute the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Um, I'm not going to take you to every single one of these uh, verses, but uh, we'll pause in some places longer than we do at others. Let me help you understand what infallible means. Do you see that in the third line there? We teach that the scriptures constitute the only infallible rule of faith and practice. That means incapable of error. It doesn't mean that it just doesn't have errors. It means that it cannot error. Okay? So there is a rule for us, a, a rule for what should be believed, and there's a rule for what we should practice from that, how we should live. So there's a rule for faith, there's a rule for practice, it's the Bible for us, and that rule is incapable of erring. It will not ever lead you to believe in something that you should not believe in, and it will not lead you to practice something you should not practice when you interpret it correctly, right? So it is incapable of error. 
Um, I'll let you look up most of those there on your own, okay? First um, Corinthians 2, that passage, uh, verses 7 to 14, we're not going to turn there now, but that's Paul's statement um, on how the Word of God came to him as an apostle, how, how the words of God's wisdom came to the apostles. Um, and you can read that and dig into that more. Let's talk about number two. We believe that the Word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. We'll just full stop right there. Uh, the example of that is First Thessalonians 2.13. You're familiar with this. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. By, by saying that it is objective propositional revelation, what we mean is that it just it's a collection of offerings of what should be considered. It, the Bible states itself for what it is and says, consider this, accept it, live by it. It's propositional. It's setting forth statements about God, about man, about sin, about hell, about heaven, about salvation. It's objective, propositional revelation. And you've got several passages there to consider. It's God-breathed in every word. 2 Timothy 3.16. It's not God-breathed in most of the parts and some parts not so much and then God-breathed in other parts. You don't have more inspired parts in a Bible than other parts. For instance, let me give you an example. You might think that that sounds crazy. Have you ever heard of red-letter Christians? What does that mean? What words matter to them most? The things that Jesus said. Now you have an, a more inspired part of Scripture than the rest. And anytime you have a Bible within the Bible, big problems. Big problems. So uh, it is inspired in every word. We were talking in our group today about numbers and how uh, challenging it can be to read numbers. Every word inspired. As much... Uh, inspired as the gospel of John. Um, John is not more important than numbers or whatever favorite book of the Bible you might have. It's God breathed in every word. It is absolutely inerrant. Okay. So now you've got two key words you want to think about infallible and inerrant. Infallible means, like I said, incapable of erring. It cannot lead you into error. It will not put forth error. Inerrant means just without error. It's not the same as incapable of. It just doesn't have any errors. Both statements are very necessary for God's word. You want to say, and we do need to say, that scripture is inerrant. It has no errors in it. But you can write a statement that is without error. <coughs> you can be factually true in what you write. But you are not infallible. So infallible is actually a, a more important word than inerrant or inerrancy. Um, because other documents and other writings can be without error. 
but th there is only one document that is incapable of error, but it is both. It is infallible and inerrant. Um, two years ago, the Shepherds Conference was all on inerrancy. It was the Inerrancy Summit. Uh, it was four days of massive amounts of preaching on Scripture. I encourage you. There's a you can get all of those messages online. Uh, there's more there that you have to, than you have time to, to listen to, but a great resource for you. Um, so it is absolutely inerrant in the original documents and infallible from the opening chapters of Genesis, which present creation in six literal days, to the closing chapters of Revelation, which detail the return, reign, and eternal rule of Jesus Christ. Now, you, you know this, I think, uh, but let's make sure that it's clear. We do not have Paul's original letter that he wrote to Titus. Right? We don't have any of the originals at all. In fact, I read a very interesting article yesterday that, um, I don't know, Chally is linked to it on his uh, daily a la carte thing that he does. Um, did anybody else see that on, on what they thought it cost to write a New Testament letter? Uh, it, depending on its size, the bigger the letter, obviously, the more it would have cost. But they try to give a, a guesstimation that it will, probably would have cost, a smaller size letter would have cost an equivalent of $2,000 in Paul's day, that's our equivalent. A larger would be up to seven, eight thousand dollars to write. And the very fact is that Paul probably wrote more than one copy, because he, if he wrote just one copy and gave it to Titus, or gave it to, as you'll find out for tomorrow, Paulus or Zenos, the lawyer, and delivered it down to Titus, and they lost it. Well, he would have another one. And so he probably did at least two copies, or at least one copy, maybe two copies. So there might have been three of the same letter that Paul had. And it's very possible that when he says at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he says to Timothy, let me find it, verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. It's possible that he means bring, he, he something happened there where he had no time to get his coat or any of his stuff. And all of his letters are there. Perhaps. Could also include the Old Testament uh, parchments as well. So anyway, um, we don't have the originals. Um, we believe that the originals are inerrant. Um, we have copies. The copies that we have, which are make up our Bible, um, do have some copyist errors in them. And what is amazing is two things. One, why did God do that? Why don't we have the original? What would happen if we did have the original? You know what we would do, <laughs> right? Um, we would, there would be a temptation, there would be wars over it, um, factions over it. Um, and think about what, what God has done. There is no document, there's no book. If you just take the New Testament, there's no book that has greater uh, bibliographical evidence for accuracy than this book. Um, there are so many tens of thousands of copies, fragments and different styles of copies that when you take them all and you set them next to each other and you compare and you put them together, you can, we have every bit of confidence that we have the intended um, transmission that God wanted to give in the original. 
Um, if we are still off and we find better uh, collections of manuscripts later that are earlier and closer to the original date of writing and that are uh, all aligned and it makes us want to change a word or two there, we're, we're not going to change paragraphs in our Bible. We're going to change words. We're going to change from the singular to the plural. We're going to change. There's not going to be essential doctrine that's changed. We have every bit of confidence that this book is as God intended it to be. Um, if you think about it, uh, when you go to college and you sit and you're in a Greek philosophy class, no uh, professor ever tells you, well, you know, we're not really sure we have Plato's words because we don't have any of the originals. And this book by Homer, the Iliad, we're not really sure because we don't have the original. But the first time they have the opportunity to say that, they will say that about the Bible. You don't have the originals. Yeah, well, we don't have the originals to almost anything from that's ancient. In fact, the, the number of copies for uh, some of those ancient writers numbers into the tens, hundreds. The New Testament numbers into the ten thousands. So do you want to talk about how, who's got more evidence for how accurate their writing is? I mean, we, there's no comparison at all. So um, we believe it's absolutely inerrant in the original documents and infallible. And this is important. Why is it infallible? It's incapable of error from the opening chapters of Genesis, which says there's a six-day creation. We believe that at Grace Bible Church, by the way, if you don't know that. That is incapable of error. All the way to the very end, see, your front and your back end of the books are both getting messed with by Christians. Well, that's not truly a scientific, um, accurate representation of how things began. Um, so are you saying it's infallible, that it's capable of error? And how are things going to end? Well, it's not really that important to know all of those kinds of details. Well, no, it's, it's, it is without error, and it is incapable of error from the very first page to the very last page. Kyle? Could you, real quick, I just, I just think about it. Like, so that was the New Testament, you have copies of letters. How does the Old Testament? Not, we don't have as much attestation for that. Mm -hmm. However, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was profound, and it was very affirming. When they found that, wasn't that in the 40s? Or yeah. yeah. Um, the thought before that was that there were some sections in the Old Testament where it was like, yeah, I think this is good. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it just was like, oh my goodness, the copies that we did have were very good. Or uh, the, 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 the Old Testament passages that we had translated in, in our different Bibles were very good, were confirmed by um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's only going to get better as we find more. Our, our, we're only going to fine-tune even more. And again, what we're going to fine-tune is spelling and plural, singular things. We're not going to fine-tune. Uh, we actually need to take the Gospel of John out. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Or the resurrection has been overturned because we found this copy that says he didn't. Um, that's not going to happen. So um, New Testament has a lot more. Um, Old Testament, not as much, but that does not mean we're less confident. Yeah. So, um, number three, 
This is my favorite one. We're going to camp on this one a little bit. We believe that the Holy Spirit superintended the human authors so that through their individual personalities and writing styles, they recorded God's word to man. When you read James, or if, if I didn't tell you where I was going to read in the Bible, I could read from one letter, and if you were familiar enough with the New Testament, you'd probably be able to say, oh, I, I recognize that. Not, but not just merely by the words, but by the style. Um, God did not all of a sudden turn Paul into this neutral, no personality <laughs> vessel that just scribbled and you know it wasn't that way he was he was passionate by the, the things he was passionate for and those things come out uh the spirit was not hindered by what the spirit wanted to communicate through the man's personality um his personality did not override the spirit um the spirit did not override his personality there's this perfect god determined blend of two authors a capital a author god and a lowercase a author, the man. Um, it drives its authority not from man, obviously, but from God. And it is without error in whole or in the part. Now, here's what I want to, to do. I want you to see what the New Testament says about the New Testament. Okay? There are three times in the Gospel of John, you can turn there. Let's go to John 14 first. There are three times in Jesus' last night with his disciples where he refers to the spirit as the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. So consider the role of the Holy Spirit in authoring scripture. Notice the first sentence there on that arrow. The spirit of truth brought forth the four gospel accounts. John 14, verse 16. Jesus says to the disciples, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Who is that helper? He is the spirit of truth. The world cannot receive him because it doesn't know him, see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Important statement on the difference between uh, Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation distinction. Not difference in salvation. Let me say it better. A difference in the way the Holy Spirit was involved in salvation in the Old Testament to the New Testament. The Spirit was with them in the Old Testament. He is in them after Pentecost. A, 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 a distinction. They still needed the Spirit in conversion, obviously. You must be born again. Jesus taught that. That's not the point here. Notice the spirit of truth. He continues on in his dialogue with the disciples about that. And then jump over to verse 26 when he picks back up again with this spirit of truth. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Watch this. What's he going to do? The spirit of truth. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Right there, Jesus tells the apostles the Spirit of God will bring to your remembrance everything I said to you. We will have the Gospels. The four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The Spirit of God will bring to you the Gospels. Okay? Look at the next sentence. The Spirit of truth brought forth the Apostles' testimony in Acts and their New Testament epistles. Go to John 15, verse 26. Here's the second Spirit of truth statement that Jesus gave. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, 
again, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. There's the uh, statement that the spirit is going to be with you in a way that now you also will testify. You apostles will write. So now we know that the spirit of truth is not just going to help them remember everything that they that Jesus said that they need to write down for the gospels, but the spirit of truth is now saying, and you also apostles will testify. Okay, so that takes care of really Acts and the New Testament epistles. But there's one more statement. Go to John chapter 16, verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into most of the truth. No, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. I think there you have the book of Revelation and the end. So Jesus, at the beginning of the New Testament, in John, in his time with the apostles, which we know was actually before we had the Gospels, right? It was in 30 AD. Um, he is with them, and he is announcing to them that the spirit of truth is going to come, and he's going to bring to remembrance everything that I said to you, and you will write the Gospels. And then you will testify also, and then the spirit of truth will tell you what is to come. And when he does this, he's guiding you into how much of the truth? What did it say there? All the truth. We have everything the Spirit of God was given to write to us. We have all the truth. All of it. We're not missing any of it. We have all the truth. Do you think John understood that he was testifying kind of to himself about what you... Or, I mean, he was even testifying to himself on that, or do you think that that was just... I think here he's... Um, I, I, that's a great question. He's writing... This gospel, you know, it's one of the latter uh, letters written. I, I think he, as he's writing it, it, it under remembrance from the Spirit, that he's like going, yeah, we've got the New Testament. The, the guys have been writing. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think this is his commentary on He's telling us what Jesus said. Now, let's build on that. The next arrow underneath number three. Consider the awareness the apostles had in authoring Scripture. This is where it's been helpful for me. I don't know if, you, if you've ever had this uh, kind of thinking rattling around in your head, but uh, you, can, you can sometimes think, um, when these guys wrote these letters, I mean, they were just writing to churches and situations, and then somehow mysteriously after that, it just became the Bible. And um, what I want you to see is that if the Spirit told the apostles, if Jesus told the apostles that the Spirit of truth will lead them to write, do you think they knew what they were doing? Let me just ask you to think about that. Do you think Paul, when he was writing, do you think he knew what he was doing? What about Peter? Did Peter know what he was doing when he was writing? He was there. He, he heard Jesus say this three times. Well, let's take a look. Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Verses 14 to 16. Here's what we know. First statement. Peter knew Paul 
was writing scripture. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them these, of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of of the scriptures. So what is he doing with Paul's letters? Scripture. They're on par with what? The rest, the rest of scripture. So Peter knew that Paul's writings were scripture. Do you think Paul knew they were? If Peter knows they are, do you think Paul knew they were? Let me take you to, um, I'll let you, we'll, we'll skip the 1 Corinthians 2 one for Paul, knowing that he was, uh, that takes, that would take like a full hour of explanation. Um, so I'm going to take you to two. I'm going to take you to Second Timothy chapter three, that will confirm, I think, for us well enough that uh, Paul knew that he was writing scripture. Second Timothy three, verse ten. We all know verse sixteen. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, adequate, equipped for every good deed. We love that, and I think when you back up a little bit in this paragraph, all scripture what that means becomes even more alive to you. Look at verse 14. Uh, there's a contrast uh, before that. Evil men and imposters are going to proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's, he's warning Timothy, look, it's only going to get worse. Deception is on the rise for the church. Deception is on the rise. You, in contrast... Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Um, well, what has he learned? Where does this come from? We got to back up to verse 10. You followed my teaching, Timothy. My conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystrum. What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord has rescued me. You followed my teaching, verse 14, um, continue in the things that you have learned from my teaching, become convinced of them from my teaching, so you know this. And, verse 15, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings that he would have known from childhood? Old Testament. So, Timothy, it's my last letter to you. I taught you and you learned from me. Hold on to these things and be convinced. And you have the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So you have what I taught you and what you learned from, and you have the sacred writings. And then what does he say in verse 16? All scripture. So what is he including in that? We always, we know for certain that what he meant was the old Testament. We know that for certain, but what does the context tell you? He's saying, you heard me teach, you learned from me, and you have the sacred writings. All scripture is inspired by God. Is God breathed? 
this confirms in many ways, it's almost, it's, it's Paul's way of saying what um, Peter said. His writings are on the bit par with the rest of scriptures. Um, all scripture. Look at, I, I think even uh, Titus chapter 1 verse 3 says it plainly as well that Paul knew he was writing scripture. We saw this at the beginning. I didn't take time in, as we were going through it to really um, dwell on it. Um, but this is amazing. Paul is an, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And um, he is an apostle in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. But at the proper time, manifested these things. And so at the proper time, this hope of eternal life that he promised long ages ago that became manifest or revealed at the proper time, he's saying his word. Well, what is his word? When did that word come out and was when was it revealed? In the proclamation with which I was entrusted. So this hope of eternal life, which was promised long ago, um, it became manifest at the proper time in uh, his word became manifest in what? How did, what was his word manifest that wasn't manifest in the, in the past? It was manifest in the proclamation which, which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. I think this is another statement where Paul knows that, look, um, God had more words to bring and it would reveal and manifest this hope of eternal life and those words were located in what Paul proclaimed. Um, more testimony of that. Paul knew that he was writing scripture. Lastly, go back to Second Peter chapter 3. Did Peter know he was writing scripture? Again, if he was spending the last night with Jesus and Jesus said, the spirit of truth will bring to remembrance everything I, I told you. And you will testify also. And he will guide you into what is to come. Uh, and he'll tell you what is to come. And he'll guide you into all of the truth. Did Peter know that he was writing? Look at chapter 3, verse 1 in Second Peter. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words, which words? The words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. What's that? It's the Old Testament. And that you should remember, what else? The commandment of the Lord and Savior. So Jesus had some commandments. How did they come to them? By your apostles. And Peter's one of them. So Peter is saying that the commandments of the Lord for the church are coming to you through me. Remember them and what the holy prophets wrote. Um, so Peter knew that what he was writing were the commandments of the Lord and Savior um, that he spoke. So what does that do for you? I'll tell you what it does for me, guys. Um, you look at the New Testament and it, and it takes away some of the fuzziness of how did it come together? Did these guys know what they were doing? Probably not is what you might think. And But just over time, God was mysteriously superintending that this letter and not that one. And they all kind of stayed together. Now, look, God did do that. There, There's a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that we don't have. And it's not God breathed. If it was, we would have it because the spirit guided us into all the truth that we need. 
And if we found that letter, I don't think we would include it. That's my opinion. But um, the, the point is, God was superintending this process of putting it all together. But the Bible itself, the New Testament is clear that it was going to come to pass. It's a self-authenticating um, statement. Here's the New Testament that's coming. And the New Testament confirms that. Um, I don't know. That, that just both These guys knew what they were doing. Paul knew what he was writing. Peter knew what he was writing. Peter knew what Paul was writing, that it was Scripture. So um, I, that just builds confidence for me in the Word of God. Um, let's talk about the fourth presupposition. Number four, we believe that whereas there may be several applications of any given passage of Scripture, there is but one true interpretation of that passage. Full stop for a moment. Um, what we're going to do in the, week, uh, the next time we, we get together on this is we're going to help you understand the difference between what interpretation is and what application is. Very important to, to sort some of these things out. Um, thus, the meaning of a biblical text is a fixed historical reality rooted in the historical unchangeable intentions of its divine and human authors. The meaning that is in the page never changes. The meaning of the two authors, capital A, little a, that meaning never changes. Doesn't matter what continent you lived on, doesn't matter what century you lived in, what millennia you lived in, that meaning never changes, right? The meaning of scripture is to be found when a spirit-indwelt believer diligently applies the literal, grammatical, <coughs> historical method of interpretation. We'll see the definitions below. Apart from the Holy Spirit's work in the reader of Scripture, the reader will not be able to appropriately understand and respond to the Word of God. Um, unbelievers can read the Bible and understand what it says. But not like you and I can understand what it says. They can't appropriately understand it and put it into practice and respond to it the right way. Um, Psalm 119, verse 18 um, um, I thought I could remember it. I can't now. Um, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in thy law. That's what it is. A dependence on the, the psalmist that I need your help. Open my eyes so that I can behold wonderful things in your law. Hebrews 4, 2, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 all say the same type of thing, that there's a need um, for help from God. And it is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the uh, true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. The Bible is not here, men, and we are up here looking down on it, judging it. Okay? The Bible is up here, and we are down here, and it is discerning us. Okay? That is always the posture to take. Um, whenever that gets flipped, the church is toast and done. Or it's Catholic. Same thing. All right, so a couple of little definitions here. The first three arrows talk about uh, help you to understand what literal grammatical historical is. We'll come to this even later. What do we mean by literal? Literal refers to the normal usage of words or language. That's what literal means. You may have an idea in your mind of what literal means. It means wooden, inflexible, impossible to change 
It's just rigid use of words. Nobody likes to be literal like that. People who are so literal bug us, right? Um, that's what we think of when we think of literal. But Bible text should be studied in view of the normal use of language. How is the word, the phrase, the clause, or the section normally understood? And there's further definitions below here. What do we mean by grammatical? It's kind of self-explanatory. It refers to the rules of grammar. Parts of speech and grammatical constructions need to be observed and analyzed following the rules of grammar. Meaning is revealed through these uh, rules. And what do we mean by historical? We basically mean context. There's a context in which words are put together by people in a statement, and we are to look at that normal use of language. So it is a normal use of words, and we arrange those words in a certain way that it makes sense, and it's in a context. And that happens in every conversation you ever have. That's going on right now. I'm picking words, I'm assembling them in my mind, and you are intuitively understanding the arrangement of those words, and you understand that we're at build, and I'm communicating here, and I'm not yelling off a pier at the ocean to a guy who's drowning. There's a context. Context has a huge import and uh, effect on the meaning. So the fourth arrow there... The proper application of this LGH method, literal, grammatical, historical, um, in the scripture forms what we're calling the controlling line of authority for the meaning of the biblical text. This controlling line of authority for the meaning of the text is actually rooted in the text itself, not outside the text someplace else. In other words, guys, if somebody ever does this with you and reads a passage and then says, uh, now let me tell you what that means, and they go walking over here, metaphorically speaking. And they start telling you all kinds of stuff and they're not using those words right there about what that means. That's not the way you interpret and find meaning in anybody's words. And if anybody ever did that to your own words, it would really bug you. Right? So we're going to talk more about that in a moment. So this is how you use this. You, you know how to use literal, grammatical, historical interpretation every day. You use it. You just said, no, it was called literal, grammatical, historical. <laughs> but you know how to do it every day. Number five, we believe that the scriptures center particularly on the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when properly understood, lead to him. I need to have you put a correction in these verses here. Luke 24, 27 is fine. And comma, verse 44 is fine. John five thirty nine is fine. But before the 17 verses 2 and 3, you need to put the word acts. All of those are from Acts. Acts 17, 2-3, Acts 18, 28, Acts 26, 22-23, and Acts 28, 23. At some point, you would have been very disturbed because John does not have 26 chapters, nor does he have 28. <laughs> which was troubling me this morning as I was looking back through it. The Word of God is first and foremost the revelation of God. We have all the truth. We're not adding more truth to the... the Gospel of John. The Word of God is first and foremost the revelation of God, and the believer's relationship with God in this life depends primarily on his pursuit of God through his words. So, those are the presuppositions we carry to it before we even start interpreting it. Okay? So, now let me give you some important definitions. You see them right there. Hermeneutics is a set of rules for understanding text. What happens when you take those rules and you actually apply them to the words on the page? Well, that's the next word. That's called exegesis. Exegesis. 
It's from the Greek meaning to draw out or to explain. When you apply the rules for understanding text, you derive the meaning in the text. It's the application of hermeneutics. It is the process by which the meaning of a passage is, notice how it's said, is drawn what? Out of the words. It's drawn out of the words on the page. That's so important. The very idea of exegesis calls for a literal, grammatical, historical approach to interpretation. Um, And that may require you to step outside your comfort zone and study a little harder and a little longer. Um, What is eisegesis? The next one. X means out of, right? Exit. How do you get out of this room? Right over there. X. Ice means in. Uh, Now, this is bad. Eisegesis is bad. Now you're taking an idea and you're what? You're reading it into the page. You're bringing an idea that's foreign from the page to the page and you're bringing it and you're pushing it onto the page, right? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst, right? That's true theologically, but that is a church discipline context. And instead of reading the idea that's in our head about what that means that's precious to us, that when two or three brothers are together, there's the Lord. Um, well, that, that may be true, but that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus meant the witnesses have been corroborated, and I was there, and it's time to act on the one who won't repent. That's what that passage means. Okay? So, eisegesis, bad. Exegesis, good. Interp- uh, what is meaning? Meaning is the truth intention of the author. Uh, The author alone gets to determine the meaning of his own words. Are you okay with that? Are you okay if you get to be the one to determine the meaning of your words? Yeah? Then what is interpretation? Interpretation is the understanding of that truth intention. Oh, I understand what you meant. What you mean. That's interpretation. Literal. We're going to talk about it again here for a moment. The most simple and direct and ordinary meaning of phrases and sentences so when you see the word literal, what, if, if I could bring any correction in, in this to you, I would want you to not think literal is a bad word. It's not. It is a great word. It just means normal. The normal usage, simple, direct, ordinary meaning of phrases and sentences. It's the plain sense of the word, the phrase, or the sentence. A literal interpretation does not automatically exclude figurative or metaphorical usages of words. Literal interpretation does not imply a strict woodenness to a word, phrase, or sentence so that it has no flexibility in meaning whatsoever from one context to another. A literal reading of a text is normal reading of a text. Um, let me give you one example. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. In a, in a span of about... Uh, 20 verses, the word sleep is used three different times. has three different meanings. Okay? And it starts at the one, goes to the second, goes to the third, and it goes back to the, the first. Okay? In, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, it talks about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That's, they've died in Christ. So sleep in chapter 4, verse uh, 14, is to be dead in Christ. That's to be asleep. Okay? In chapter 5, verse 6, 
So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. If you believed that that word only has one meaning ever, and Paul just determined what it was to be dead in Christ, he now just said, and so then let us not die in Christ as others do. That makes no sense. Well, let's stay in verse 6, and let's let verse 6 help us understand what sleep here means. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be, oh, alert and sober. Oh, I see. He's talking about spiritual lethargy, spiritual laziness. Oh, so he was using sleep just a moment ago to talk about being dead in Christ, but now he's using it a different way. Now watch this, verse 7. Four, now let me explain, Paul says. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Wait a minute. Now he's talking about literal, physical sleep. So don't be spiritually lethargic because those who really do sleep physically do that at night. And he's using this light and darkness and sleep and alert thing. And so he just went to physical sleep in verse 7. And then hold on, look back at verse 10. This Jesus who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep... We will live together with him. He's now back to whether we're alive or whether we die in Christ. So in one broader context, the word sleep moves from one meaning to a second meaning to a third meaning back to the original meaning. So that's literal. That is a literal approach. That's the normal use of language. You can take a word and you can tweak it. And, and, uh, and, it's, and if it has a variety of meanings, you can use that different variety of meanings. It's a legitimate way to talk. We do that all the time. Um, there's a great example here. A normal reading means statements are assumed to be literal unless it is evident the author was using a figure of speech. For example, when Jesus said, I am the door, we don't conclude that Jesus is made of wood and has hinges, right? We naturally understand that our Lord was using imagery. Our minds accept, uh, examine the literal meaning, find it unlikely, and accept it as a figure of speech. We should note that even when interpreting figures of speech, it is a good policy to begin with a literal. What is a door? What's the purpose a door serves? Having asked that, we then ask, what was Jesus trying to communicate by comparing himself to a door? The literal function of a door suggests the meaning of the figure. Jesus is the gateway to eternal life and so forth. Okay? So let's talk now about wrong ways to interpret scripture. Two wrong ways. To determine if an interpretation of scripture is faithful to what the author intended on the page, you can ask this important question. Where is the controlling line of authority in that interpretation? Okay, where's the controlling line of authority in that interpretation? The authority that determines what an author means is located in the author's actual words and the arrangement of them in a particular context. That's the way that it has always been, and that's the way we like it as authors of our own words every day. We do not want interpreters to define our words or find our meaning by leaving our words and looking outside of our words someplace else. We don't want that. The minute your kids do that, it drives you nuts. And the context in which we authored our words matters, and it should not be changed or ignored. When any of this happens, the controlling line of authority for what we mean is moved outside of our words and the original context is, and is determined by something else, not by us. Um, and so, wrong ways to interpret scripture are more easily identified by this question. Where's the controlling line of authority in that interpretation? As you sit and listen on a Sunday, anybody teach up there, you should be asking yourself, what's the controlling line of authority for his interpretation? How is he telling me what that passage means? 
Is he doing it by directing me to the very words themselves? Or is he, has, he, has he left those words long ago and has just been rambling? Um, it, it helps you to understand. Anytime that happens, you, that doesn't mean that there's automatic error going on, but it means you, you need to be re- listening really carefully. Okay? Is the meaning or the interpretation um, under consideration is restricted to the scripture's words and the context, or is it determined by something else outside the words? So here's a wrong way, number one, the allegorical method or the spiritualizing of the text. An allegorical or spiritualizing of a text is when people and the events and other details of the text have hidden or symbolic meanings. Like you would read it and you wouldn't initially see the meaning. There's something kind of hidden and symbolic there. You need a key that's not in the text to unlock the text so that the meaning can come out. This is bad. Okay, this is bad. Um, Imaginative associations are made between the mind or experience of the interpreter and the words in the text. The controlling line of authority for the meaning of the text is not found in the words or uh, of the text or in the context in which they were spoken, but rather in the mind and the imagination of the interpreter. Uh, This is a, a true example from one of the early church fathers his interpretation of uh, the Good Samaritan. One church father interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations. The traveler who was attacked represents a person seeking salvation. The robbers represent Satan. Naturally, the Good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and the wine that were applied to his um, wounds. The Samaritan ministered to the injured man's wounds. Picture the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. And the donkey is the gospel. That's my favorite. Um, because it was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the inn, which is the church where the man recovered. Now, the last time you read that, that didn't come to your mind. Do you know why it didn't? Because that's not in the text. That's not what he was saying. That is a symbolic meaning that existed in an imaginative mind, and the only way you could come to that is he had to take the authority key out of that, mess with it, and say this is what it means, and it's not right. It's an allegorical spiritualizing of the text. And we may laugh at that. That's a little um, maybe extreme. But there are very subtle, smaller versions that we participate in much more ourselves and um, than we probably care to admit. So you need to ask yourself the question again, where is the controlling line of authority for the meaning and the interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan found? In that case, above, it's not located in the actual words. The actual words are not going to lead you to those conclusions. But it's located, the controlling line of authority is in the guy's imagination. And we mock this and say, that's so dumb. But you know what? What if the controlling line of authority for your interpretation of Scripture is not in your imagination, but it's in your theological system? It's no different. You might be right. Your theological system might be right. What if your theological system's wrong? But that's always the key for your authority. Can I give you an example? Westminster Confession of Faith. Great document. Um, Don't agree with all of it. But if that controls what the Bible means, that every time your Bible is open, you have to define what the meaning is by that, that's a problem. I don't care if that's right or good. You never take your system or your conclusions that you draw theologically and say that is the controlling line of authority for what this means. You take that and you lift the Bible up high and you take your theological 
conclusions and you push them down under the Bible and you say, Bible, speak to that again and change it if it's wrong. That's what you do every single time. And the way you get to that is by normal use of words in the text. Okay? Um, Wrong way number two. It's the what it means to me method. Very common, very common. Um, Sit around having coffee, sit around in small group and discussing a passage and people just kind of say that this just comes out of their mouth easily. Well, what it means to me is, and I think in all honesty, a lot of times people are just not um, careful. I don't think they actually mean that. They, they, what they're trying to say is, here's what I think about the passage. But, but, but you need to get jealous for the word meaning. Here's what it means to me. No, it means what the author meant. What I think it means needs to be submitted under the author. Wouldn't you want people to do that with your words? Can you imagine your child after you just were trying to correct them and discipline them? And you said, okay, let's just do all your kids. You got, you got all of them lined up. They just did something absolutely destructive in the house. And you have been on the most amazing um, corrective rant you've ever had. <laughs> and you say, now children, I want to hear you discuss among yourselves what I just said. Well, what, what, what it means to me is... And I said, no, no, what it means to me is... What, no, 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 I meant what I meant. You know, we don't do these things with our own words. We don't like it when others do that with our words, but it happens very easily with God's words, Right? So what this passage means to me, God's intent and the actual words of the text are really not the concern. It's just what it strikes me. What prompted the historical and theological context for those words is not relevant in the moment for the one who says that. All that matters is how that passage strikes the reader in the moment. It's it's often called the reader response theory. Uh, It's the the more technical um, hermeneutical approach. In other words, some people even take it as far as you can read this and until it like strikes you, it isn't the word of God. It doesn't become the word of God until it strikes you. And now that it struck me, oh, it really is the word of God. What's the word of God before it ever struck you? But people take that. See, what, what, what is the controlling line of authority for them? It's not this. It's themselves. It's how they feel about what it says. And when they finally feel something about it, now that's, now I'll give it authority. Guys, woof. look, see, this is a, it's a, it can make it easier to determine, okay, what, what, where's this person's interpretation coming from? What controls it? Is it the words on the page or is it in the guy, the reader? Um, just watch really carefully on this. All that matters is how the passage strikes the reader in, in the moment especially when the passage is not carefully studied. Watch this. The reader's intuitive, unstudied response determines the meaning of, for that passage. I, I can't tell you how many times I've done this. Somebody will ask me, what, what does that passage mean? And I'll start to talk about what, what it means, and I'll be like, you know what? I haven't studied that. I, 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 I take back everything I said. I, whatever it is I just told you, I want to wait. I need to go study that. Because I thought I knew what it meant, and now that I think about it a little bit more, eh, I wish I'd been quiet until I studied that's okay to say. Um, needs to be said more for me, I know. Um, where's the controlling line of authority for the meaning of the text in that, in that example? Well, it's not located in the actual words, not in the context. 
It just exists in whatever idea exists in the interpreter's head. And if anyone did that to our own words, what these two wrong methods of interpreting do to God's word, we'd be up in arms. What if someone used their fanciful imagination to determine what you meant by words you wrote in an email? Can you imagine your child saying to you after reading your to-do list for them, well, what your list means to me is um, the normal rules of a language and how an author communicates gets utterly abandoned. We can easily identify the wrong ways of interpreting words by the fact that they locate the authority for determining meaning outside of the very words we're considering. Okay? So then what is the right way to interpret Scripture? Um, the right way to interpret the Bible is to read it as carefully and normally as possible, which means that the controlling line of authority in determining the meaning of the words is found in the words themselves on the given context. You want to know why when people teach the Bible here, that they're paying attention to word by word, by phrase, by phrase, by phrase. It, it matters. That can be done in a way that's not helpful, and that can be done in a way that, that, that uh, kills people. I, I know I'm capable of doing that, but you can't not pay attention to the way that the words are related. Um, we must let Scripture mean what it means based on the words it says in its setting. Interpretation is not a magical or mysterious process that's only given to elders to do it it is there you are much more intuitive at it than you know and think you can interpret this book because you can interpret words every day and you do it you need help though let's talk a little bit more about the literal grammatical historical interpretation of scripture what we have just described above as the best way to interpret scripture is formally known as the lgh method you can look back at the definitions. Do not say page four, though. Say pages two and three because we're on page four and the definitions are not there. I moved things around and didn't change my page number. Um, literal, again, means the normal sense of words. By grammatical, we mean um, the parts of speech and the grammatical arrangements of the words. Can I, can I give you a really silly example? I'm going to put it up on the uh, whiteboard. because only four cents. Not with that one, though. Maybe not with any of them. I'm going to give you a simple statement. grammatical relationships are. This makes sense. This makes no sense. But the exact same words are there. What's the problem? I took clauses and I switched them with what conjunctions they are. This is a conjunction. This is a conditional clause. Here's your main idea. 
I will, I will not come to your house under this condition if it's raining. And under this condition too, until the rain stops. Here's the main cause over here. I will not come to your house. Condition is if the rain stops. That's the exact opposite of what this means. What's the difference? Same exact words. Same exact words. What's the difference? Grammatical relationships. And so let's do, let's pretend this is the Bible. You know what we're going to do? We're going to study the Bible and we're going to do word study. We're going to study word. So let's study the word rain. Here's, here's Meredith there. And so we do our exegetical, we look at the dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, and we, we talk about what rain means and we write out pages of stuff and what it means. And, and this verb uh, will not come until it's future tense. And so we're writing that up. I love the word house. It's, and you just you go all through your word study, and your word study um, will not give you this meaning on its own. You need to know what those words mean. But if you did the same word study on this over here, you'd come to the same conclusions from your word study. You have to understand, and you already do, guys. You already do get this. You may not be able to identify everything as a conditional clause and a subordinate clause and a main idea and the main clause. You may not be able to say that out loud, but you intuitively know this. So that when I take them and I switch it around, you're like, that makes no sense. Well, that's because you know grammar. So words are important. You need to study the words in a passage. But that's not all you need. What more do you need? You need to understand their grammatical relationships, how they are connected together, and you know how to do that intuitively. You probably need to brush up a little bit on some grammar things, and that's okay. But you've got much more of this down than you know you do. I can give you a great example um, of this. Philippians chapter 2. I, I was reading a theology book the other day, a couple weeks ago. Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7. This Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. One of the most amazing, powerful sections of scripture anywhere. And this theologian who is writing um, did word study. He told me on several pages what existing in the form of God meant. And then he talked about what equality with God meant. And then he talked about emptying himself and what that meant. And then he talked about what it means to be a slave and then what it means to be in the likeness of men. But the one thing he did not do is talk about the relationships of those clauses to one another. So word study, which is what you probably feel most comfortable doing in your Bible study, is looking up words. That's great. Hear me correctly. Keep doing that. What do you, but what am I saying? And what does the literal grammatical historical approach to interpretation require? That you need to do more than that. Because how things are arranged matter. What's the main clause in verse 6? He did not regard equality a thing to be grasped. How are the other clauses related to that? And meaning is bound up in those things. Okay. Um, that's what grammatical is. Historical is the simple context that it takes place, um, the words were spoken in. When all three of these are taken into con careful consideration, the meaning of the author's words plainly come forth from the page of scripture, not from your own head. So that method is what we hope everyone who hears us 
um, speaks, uses. That's what we hope people do when they listen to us. The following principles or rules will help you to apply this. So we're going to give you some principles for interpreting Scripture and for controlling ourselves. You might not find this to be, um, you may have never made this connection before, but interpreting Scripture involves self-control as much as it does uh, just following good rules. When we study God's Word, there seems to be endless temptations in our minds to run from the words on the page before us to other ideas we've heard before or learned before or concepts taught in a book that we read or our own experience or maybe even other passages. One of the, one of the things you need to watch for is when a guy says, you say, hey, what, is, what does Philippians 2.6 mean? It says, although he exists in the form of God, did not require equality of God a thing to be grasped. The guy who says, oh yeah, let me tell you what that means. Turn over to uh, Revelation 5. Now, that may not be bad in and of itself, but it doesn't mean that it's good just because he stayed in the Bible. Stay on that page. Stay on that page. Find out what the words on that page mean. Dig, do more work there before you turn to another page. The two most popular ways of learning how to study that are initially grabbed by Christians is word study and cross-referencing. And both of them are very important, and both of them on their own, apart from studying the grammar on the page, are woefully insufficient. You will know what every word means. You won't know how it's connected and related to other things and and what the ideas are that the, the, the author is trying to communicate. And when you turn from that page to turn to another page to define it, you're going to get yourself in trouble. If you want to know what justification means in Paul and you turn to James and use James's definition for justification, you're going to be in big trouble. You're going to teach heresy by importing James' use of justification into Paul's because Paul is saying justification on the basis of faith alone. No works. But if you take what James is saying, it's, he's saying faith without works is dead. And so you've got to have works if you're going to be justified. There's a place for James to say what he's saying. And justification has flexibility in how it's defined. It doesn't mean the same thing interchangeably in both passages. You would be teaching wrong doctrine in both places if you took the opposite meaning and imported it in the wrong place. Don't turn the page. Stay on the page. I'm getting way ahead of myself. I'm giving you principles already. We haven't even started. Um, What would you think of someone doing that to your words in a love letter you wrote to your spouse? They started with your words, but then perhaps they were reminded of a scene in a movie that really impacted them. And so they ran with that idea about love and so forth. Finally, where they end up may actually have very little to do with your original words of love for your spouse, all while they are holding your letter in their hands. It would be right for you to say to that person, control yourself with my words, right? That's okay to say in that situation. Please don't run off somewhere else to get at the meaning of my words. You can know what I meant right here by what I said. And we must extend to God the same courtesy whose words and meaning are exalted above all others and outlast all others. To do that, we need some guidelines to help restrain us. And the very first one that we'll just touch on today is prayerfully position yourself under the God of the word. Do you want to interpret God's word well? Start, number one, with praying. Pray and, and, and assume a posture under the, you're positioning yourself to put yourself under God's word so that it can speak over you and speak to you with authority. That will help position you to control yourself. 
You're not over the word going, I can do whatever I want to this. You're thinking, oh no, it has to do whatever it wants to me. But you're not intuitively, automatically there when you wake up in the morning. At least I'm not. And it's helpful. This is why Scott gets up here every every Saturday and says, here's what I like to think about to get my... Do you notice that he has a devotion before he has a devotion? Do you notice that? That's pretty wise. He has to do something to get his mind and his heart in the right place under the word of God so that the word of God can then speak more clearly to him. It's not that it was unclear to begin with. But it'll speak more clear. It'll be clearer to him because he is in the right posture. And here, I won't read through all of this, but guys, we, we this is a sample prayer that we came up with a few years ago um, that you can use uh, to help posture yourself in a worshipful, humble place under the word of God. Um, I, I heard it said this way. Think about it this way. when you When you wake yourself up tomorrow and you rub the sleep out of your eyes and you grab your cup of coffee and you open your Bible, just stop yourself and say, um, do I have a good reason for being here? What's my reason for being here before this word? Why, why am I here? You have to have a good answer for that. Why are you here? Why, do you read the, why are you going to read this Bible next? You need to position yourself in a way that will make you low and make scripture high and this prayer is a way for you to express that. Why have I come before you with my Bible open? Um, and I've got it there in four different parts. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but um, I, I have your word open before me because, well, this is where you are, God. This is where you've revealed yourself. The word of God, this is discipline one, right? Um, the word of God is first and foremost the revelation of a person, God. And so the reason I open my Bible is I want to see, I want to meet with God. He's, he revealed himself here through these words. This book is not God. This book is full of the words of our God. Our God revealed himself to us through these words, and this is a means to get him, and I've got to get to him. That's why I'm here. I can go out and I can gaze at the sunrise and I'll see something of God, won't I? I can wait for the sun to set and I can gaze at it study it, and I'll get something of God, I will not see anything about an atoning sacrifice for my sins. I will not see anything that will make me feel that I and know that I am a sinner before God in need of a Savior. I will not see anything written in the sky that tells me how to obey God. I need God's written revelation for that. So I'm here to get that. I, I come to the word of God because, well, I, I still have this problem in me. I've got indwelling sin in me. And if I don't understand what sin really is, um, I am going to get hoodwinked by it. Um, and so another good reason to come to the word of God is so that I might think carefully about the nature of my sin and my fallenness. Another reason to come before the word of God is um, so that I might undergird my life again with the saving heart and motive of God in the gospel. I need to come to preach the gospel to myself again. I, I am a sinner. And what has God done for me um, to take care of my sin? Oh, Jesus. And that's what Scott just talked about even this morning, how he tries to think of, on Jesus Christ. Another reason um, why you're before the word of God is so that you know how to live a righteous and godly life. Guys, you could come up with six more paragraphs of why you're before the word of God. Make up as many as you want, but, but think carefully through why are you here? Ask yourself that. 
when I, and you get up in the morning, why, why am I here? Oh, yeah. I'm here because this is where I meet with God. This is where I, I need to learn more about my, the dangers that are still lurking within me. This is where I can read more about how um, the gospel has, is sustaining me um, and so forth. Okay? And then the final paragraph at the bottom of page six is about um, just recognizing that when you do that, guys, when you step out and away from that and you get into your car or you step out into your family and they're getting up and the little ones want something to eat. And now, you know what? That guy has a better chance of being ready to face those people than any other guy. Mm. The guy who doesn't do that is a guy who's already behind the eight ball and is going to have a difficult time. Mm. He's going to go to work. Look, you're going to do this and you're still going to mess other people up. Because that's what we do, unfortunately. But boy, you got a much better chance of being positioned rightly if you'll do this kind of shepherding of your heart with the word of God first. Uh, discipline one, and then discipline two, and then discipline three. And discipline five is very important because it helps you to control yourself so that you know what the word of God is saying to your heart and so that you can then communicate it to others. So part one. Our last meeting in two weeks will be on the rest of the principles, okay? Let's pray, and we'll dismiss ourselves here. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you again for, um, thank you for the clarity that language inherently possesses. You, you, you were about words. In the beginning was the word. Your son is your communication par excellence. Communication exists because of you. You are a communicating God. That so much so that you, one of one of you three is called the Word. And so, Father, we have built into us. We understand an um, an innate ability to understand communication and language and words. We may not be able to know all the fancy words that grammarians give it all, but Lord, we can understand words. And our desire is that we would understand your words above how we understand any other words spoken. Because your words are eternal life for our souls. Your words reveal you. Your words um, are better than bread. We'd rather live on your words than on bread. So Father, help us to understand your word that we might rightly see you, understand you, know what you meant, and live in light of it as worshipers of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.